Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash picture lock. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started PictureLock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR. Finally, a partner as passionate as you. It's Picture Lock on W-E-R-A-L-P Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. This week, I have three film fatales joining me. I was probably way happy to speak with founder of the Film Fatale organization, Leah Meyerhoff. We talked about how the organization started and why its existence is necessary in these times. I also talked with director Sharon Lewis about her Afro-futurist film, Black Girl Begins. We talk about the origins of her creating the film and what Afrofuturism is. Finally, I talk with director Susie Unessi about her film Unlovable. I had the pleasure of seeing the film, and you can too, next week, November 2nd, as it has a limited release in theaters. It was awesome talking with these women directors. You'll absolutely want to be on the lookout for the Picture Lock PR after show conversations I had with Sharon and Susie, which will be dropped exclusively on the podcast Monday and likely Wednesday as well, because it's two of them and I want to give them their own little time to shine. <laughs> but nonetheless, film fatales are all ahead on Picture Lock. Hey, everybody, this is Ted Adams, writer, producer, and director of A Fellow's Fun. You're listening to Picture Lock. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson, and Film Fatales supports an inclusive community of women, feature film and television directors, who meet regularly to share resources, collaborate on projects, and build an environment in which to make their films. Founded by Leah Meyerhoff in 2013, Film Fatale has expanded to include over 500 women directors in Los Angeles and New York and hundreds more in dozens of cities around the world. Film Fatale advocates for gender equality within the film industry by hosting panel discussions, educational workshops, networking events, and screening series to promote the work of women filmmakers to a wider audience. I am really excited to talk with founder of Film Fatale, Leah Meyerhoff. Leah, welcome to Picture Lock. 
Thanks so much, Kevin. Happy to be here. And I'll get into the first question, but I, I really am excited to talk with you. As you may or may not know, the listeners do, you know, last year I was I was really just looking at, you know, my my radio show and podcast and noticing that most of the time when I talk to women, female directors, it was generally around some festival. So when I was gearing up to kind of do interviews from filmmakers from a certain festival, um, that's when I was talking to a lot of women film directors. But outside of that, in, in my own little network and, you know, even the DMV area, after a while, I kind of noticed I, I was just talking to a lot more men. So I wanted to actually start talking to more women directors. Um, having a daughter myself, I was just thinking selfishly, like, if she listens to the tape and like she never really is able to hear herself in, in regard to women going into film, um, how much that would suck. So, so I'm really excited to talk to you about this. <laughs> Fantastic. So Leah, first question I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? I fell in love with film back when I was around 12 or 13 years old. Um, Growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, I grew up in Oakland and used to was very lucky to have San Francisco so close and was able to sneak into our local art house cinema and watch films that were probably rated much older than my age range. You know, <laughs> um, Boys Don't Cry stands out as a, as a memory, and I don't know how I got into that screening, but I did. And cinema really transformed my life. I think out of all the art forms, cinema is the strongest, the most powerful. It's a real tool for empathy. It's a real opportunity to watch the world unfold from someone else's perspective. And as a young woman who never felt like I belonged, an outsider growing up, just seeing films that had stories on screen that reflected some element of my life was so empowering and transformative and made me want to pursue it further. But I didn't become serious about becoming a film director until I was in college. Um, I went to Brown University and then I went to NYU for film school. And it, but it was being, seeing those very early films when I was, um, you know, a young teenager, a young girl, especially films about women, especially films directed by women that showed me that this is a path that I can pursue. And these are stories, you know, I wanted to see these stories being told. And so I decided that I would become one of the storytellers. Most definitely. I can totally relate to you on that. Um, and there's it, nothing like uh, just getting your representation uh, on the big screen. In some kind of ways, I don't know what that is, but it's also validating and um, helps you to learn more about yourself. So I think that's wonderfully said. Um, if you could, let's get your backstory. So, you know, as we move into Film Fatale and how you founded that, um, you're also a filmmaker. You have plenty of films, Eternal Flame, Twitch. I believe in unicorns. Um, how did you go from the girl sneaking in to <laughs> Boys Don't Cry <laughs> to, you know, the filmmaker and um, founding Film Fatale? Yeah, you know, it was a kind of circuitous journey, as I think it often is. Um, I went to, you know, I finished up high school. I kept sneaking into movies, um, <laughs> especially all the, the local film festivals. Um, and then I went to college, and I went to a liberal arts college, but I took some film classes at the nearby art school, the Rhode Island School of Design, and really fell in love with the craft and the, the art making, the artfulness of cinema. And we would shoot things on Super 8 and on 16 millimeter and edit on film, um, really kind of old school processes, which I just loved. And 
was also studying uh, the history of cinema at the time and, of course, the lack of women and people of color and, and, you know, had this perspective of this academic perspective of media and cinema are really the mechanisms for transforming the world. That's the way that people learn about each other. It's the way that we, you know, it's it's America's biggest export is cinema. Um, Mm. And I think I, I had this drive to be part of that conversation and be one of the people choosing what stories get told and making sure that underrepresented voices are heard. And then at the same time, I had this artistic, creative side that just really fell in love with the craft and the beauty of filmmaking and kind of came at it from a, um, you know, a photography perspective. I started with still photography and then moved into cinematography and then moved into directing. And by the time I was done with undergraduate, I knew that directing was what I wanted to do. And I, I went straight from undergraduate to graduate school um, to film school and was very lucky to have a scholarship to NYU and was able to really hone my craft there and just have the luxury of time of being surrounded by other people wanting to do the same thing. And I made a whole bunch of short films during my education and um, as well as a few commercials and some music videos. You know, I went to CBGB's, which was this punk club in New York, and I'd see bands there and go up to them and say, hey, you know, I've got a free roll of 35-millimeter film from my school. You want to make a music (laughs) video together? Um, And kind of built up my reel that way. And then from there, I I wrote a feature script and um, was meeting with a bunch of producers and ended up meeting with a wonderful woman named Heather Ray, who I met through the Sundance Institute. I made a short film. I'm kind of glossing over that. I made a short film called Twitch, a 10-minute short film, which was very successful on the film festival circuit. It started at Slam Dance and won a grand jury prize there, and then it went to about 100 other film festivals. And I really learned the world of film festivals with that short film. I traveled to as many of them as I could, as many of them that could afford to fly me out, and found this community of filmmakers on the film festival circuit. So now I had kind of my film school community, and I had the film festival community, and through both of those worlds was able to put together a team of people who believed in me enough that they were able to come along for the ride and making a feature film. And that said, it was not an easy journey, um, as it never is, but uh, it was really a wonderful, wonderful experience. And during the process of making my first feature film, which was called I Believe in Unicorns, around that same time, so those two things really went hand in hand, and it started quite organically. I was, like a lot of filmmakers, reaching out to other filmmakers, asking for advice, and calling up directors and saying, hi, I'm about to make my first feature. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? And some of the people who were the most generous with their time were other women directors. And I quickly realized it would be a lot more efficient if I just invited them all over for dinner. Rather than (laughs) 10 individual coffees, I would just invite a dozen women over to my place for dinner. And so about six women showed up, um, incredible filmmakers, many of whom have gone on to do wonderful things. Um, And we sat around my dinner table in Brooklyn, and I asked them questions specific to my film and and casting and um, working with a crew and and all sorts of just practical craft-based questions. And they were so helpful. And at the end of that dinner, one of the other women said, you know what, this was wonderful. It's so rare to be in a room full of other women directors. Let's do this again next month. And she hosted it at her place. And then the month after that, someone else hosted it. And it just organically began as this rotating dinner party of women feature filmmakers in New York. And that was about five years ago. And fast forward to now, we are a nonprofit organization that advocates for gender parity and supports a community of over a thousand women feature film and television directors around the world. And 
it really started in that living room of, of other women saying, this, there's a need for this. It tapped into a need that women filmmakers have for community and for support. And for so long, and, and my experience in film school as well, um, I was so used to being the only person who looked like me in the room. Same thing at the film festival circuits. I'd be on a panel, and I'd be the only woman filmmaker there, or I'd be at a party, and everyone would assume I was an actress or someone's girlfriend, and they never thought that I was a director. So oh, just, wow. just the fact, like the simple fact of getting women together in a room where the whole room was women filmmakers um, really allowed all of us to find our strength and find our voices outside of that room as well. We knew that when we were in another space, where we were the only woman filmmaker in the room, that there was a whole community of us out there kind of had our backs. Um, this was five years ago, and I think what's been really interesting is over the past five years as we built this really incredible community of mid-career working women and non-binary filmmakers, the rest of the world has kind of caught up in a way um, with Me Too and Time's Up and, and just the amount of press attention and people talking about inequalities in the film industry. Um, film Fatals is now shifted. We've become more than just a grassroots organization empowering women directors to share resources and network with each other and, you know, a girls club, so to speak. But now we've become this space for other, other people to find us, people saying, hey, I'm looking to hire a woman director. I'm looking to interview a woman director. You know, the way that you found us is such a wonderful example of people saying, looking around and saying, how come there's not as many women directors in the room? What can I do to change that? And some Tales has become a place that they can come and find us, and here we are. So and it's no longer a valid excuse to say, oh, well, I couldn't program a film directed by a woman, or I couldn't hire a woman because I just didn't know where they were. Um, we've been more visible with every year. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the founder of Film Fatale, Leah Meyerhoff. Leah, I think that that is a wonderful story. Um, and honestly, uh, one thing that I've noticed in my life, like even with launching DC Black Film Festival, it came in the same way um, from a natural need to, you know, be able to see my own story on, on the big screen. And, um, you know, the listeners know that whole thing. But I think it's it's amazing when you just follow that uh, that itch in your heart, that thing that says, you know what, like this is kind of needed. Um, how now it's grown into something that is amazing. And the fact that, you know, people are coming to you and you're able to say, well, why don't you check out, you know, um, this Stacey Tenenbaum or, you know, all, all the different directors that I've even talked to. Um, that is an amazing resource to have. So um, if we could, two questions, um, and then I think we can wrap out on this. Um, one, if you could let the listeners know kind of what are the resources or events that um, Film Fatale uh, is able to offer to the public? Sure. So, like I mentioned, we have a membership for women directors who've directed feature films or episodes of television. Um, and we do a whole bunch of events. We organize monthly meetings for those filmmakers in a dozen cities. Um, two of them in New York, two of them in L.A., uh, Chicago, Boston, Atlanta, New Orleans. Um, that is kind of the backbone of what we do in terms of community building and building a network of women filmmakers who can support each other and collaborate rather than compete with each other. Uh, we also have a programming arm, which I think you're familiar with as well, Kevin, where we have a database of 
100 films directed by women, feature films and short films that are available for booking on the film festival circuit or for screenings in movie theaters. And we have a team of volunteers who connect with around 125 film festivals around the world, looking to program closer to parity, looking for those films, and we can share our list with them and help them find those filmmakers to add to their festival lineups. Um, we also do that on the industry side. So we have a database of women directors looking for work as directors, and people approach us with jobs. So we interface with production companies, um, producers, um, other you know labs, Sundance Labs, Tribeca Labs, um, organizations that give out grants, and we connect them directly with filmmakers as well. You know, like Stars recently approached us saying they're looking to hire a Latina director for their show Vida, and we sent over a list of Latinx filmmakers who would be a good fit for that show. So we are almost acting like an agent or a manager for a thousand women directors, but in the nonprofit <laughs> space. It's a really interesting place that we found ourselves. Um, and then on the event side, we do a bunch of events that are open to the public as well. So we do panels and networking mixers and master classes and educational workshops. Um, all of this can be found on our website, filmplaytalk.org. We have an events calendar, and we also have a newsletter that anyone can subscribe to that is sent out on a monthly basis, letting people know about upcoming events. You know, just in, La in Los Angeles last night, we participated in a cocktail hour supporting women filmmakers at the festival. Last week, we did something similar in New York for ISP Week. Um, next month, we have a networking event coming up at the New Orleans Film Festival, two of them in Montreal, Canada. We did a big thing at the Toronto Film Festival. So we often do events during film festivals in different regions around the world. Or we do our own panel discussions, not just about women directors. So I should mention, we're focused on all forms of parody, and we, and not just directors, above and below the line for our public panels. We will do panel discussions about inequalities in the stunt industry or, you know, um, what actors are facing on a daily basis. So we do kind of go outside of our wheelhouse sometimes as well for our larger events. And of course, um, anyone, whether you're a filmmaker or not, can participate in the conversation about equality and parity in the film industry by participating in our conversations on social media. So Film Fatals has a strong presence on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, kind of all the social platforms where we engage in conversations with the general public about these issues on a daily basis. Awesome. So final question before we get, you know, again, the contact information, Leah, if you could, you know, you're talking about uh, equality and parity. Um, I don't I don't think you have to go into like why a, a, a program and an organization like this exists, but why is it important that you do exist? It's important that we exist because right now in our culture, we are nowhere near parity. And it's interesting because Film Fatals is an organization that hopes to one day become obsolete. I hope that five years from now we're no longer having this conversation and 50% mm. of directors are women and 40% are people of color and, you know, people with disabilities are directing. I hope we get to the point where it's just organic that the stories that are shown on screen reflect the diversity of the world around us and are told by a variety of voices. But until that time, organizations like Chante Tolls are important for two reasons. One is to provide a safe and supportive space for women filmmakers, um, especially queer women, especially women of color, filmmakers who have always been outside the mainstream and it is a mountain that they need to climb uh, to achieve what they want to achieve in their careers. And so just having a consistent, reliable community that they can turn to month after month 
of other filmmakers going through similar obstacles um, and opportunities, that, that foundation, I think, is, is vital for women filmmakers to continue to succeed. And then it's also important because now we're in a space where there are more opportunities for women filmmakers and where members of the public are saying, hey, how come when I go see a movie and I watch the credits scroll, it's always men, or <laughs> I go see a movie and there's only white actors on screen. Like, I don't, I'm not interested in that anymore. Um, and so Film Fatals has become a, a resource as well of just raising the visibility and saying there are a whole bunch of other filmmakers out there that you may not know of. And hopefully when your daughter grows up and she thinks of what possibilities she can have in her life, when she thinks of film director, she won't no longer think of that straight white guy in a baseball cap um, <laughs> as the only version of what it means to be a director. She might picture right. herself in that role as well. Perfectly said. And uh, I think that you are definitely um, being the change and uh, doing the work so that she can think just that exact same thing. And uh, I'm really excited to continue working with Film Fatale and just seeing what you guys will be doing. Again, ladies and gentlemen, it's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I've been talking with the founder of Film Fatale, Leah Meyerhoff. Leah, if you could, for the audience, how can people sign up for membership if they're um, if they fit the criteria? Find out more information about of you, about you guys and follow you on social media. Yeah, so the best place to find out more about Film Fatals is our website, which is filmfatals.org. And on social media, we are at, our hashtag is Film Fatals, and it is at Film Fatals NYC, which is the city where it all began. <laughs> awesome. I'll be sure to have the links in the show notes. Again, founder of Film Fatals, Leah Meyerhoff. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thanks so much, Kevin. Hey, everybody. This is Sarah Bunting, the editor-in-chief of TomatoNation.com and chief editor of Previously.tv, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson, and Brown Girl Begins is an Afro-futurist feature film about a young Black woman who is trapped in a world forced upon her. Tijan, a reluctant priestess, must resurrect Caribbean spirits and survive the possession ritual that killed her mother or her people will die. I don't know about you, but that sounds really interesting to me. I have the writer-director of the film, Sharon Lewis, on the line. Sharon, welcome to Picture Lock. Kevin, thank you. Happy to be chatting to you about Brown Girl Begins. I'm, I'm really excited uh, to talk to you about it and Afrofuturism and all that that means, especially as the director of the DC Black Film Festival. But if you could, Sharon, the first question I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? Well, I'm going to tell you it was Black Girl Magic. Seriously. And it was 15 years ago, Kevin. It took me 15 years to make this film. And I was living in L.A. I was going to UCLA studying directing. And I walked into my favorite black bookstore, Estelon Books. And uh, my friend, Nalo Hopkinson, for years was talking about writing Brown Girl in the Ring. And there was the book on the bookshelf, Brown Girl in the Ring. So I pulled it down, started reading it. And I'm not lying, I know it sounds like a cliche, but I literally in that moment was like, I need to make this a movie. Because wow. I had never read anything that had a Caribbean female protagonist as a superhero. Like I was like, what? 
And then this is way before Black Panther, right? Right. This was way before Wakanda. So I was like, this is crazy. And then it took place in Toronto, and I'm from Toronto. So I knew right then I had to make that a film. I had to bring Tijan to life. Wow. So, okay. Now now I'm really interested in the next portion of the question, which is how did you get in the industry? So, like, how did you go from, you know, the girl that was looking at this book and, like, I have to have to make this into a film. Did you, like, run straight to film school or did you have a circular (laughs) journey? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what happened was I was in Toronto and I got cast in the lead as um, as this character, Rude, a DJ. And this is in, like, the mid-'90s. And it was the first film, black film, to go to the Cannes Film Festival. So my first lead role went to Cannes, and I was like, wow, acting's fantastic. You end up <laughs> in the red carpet. You know what I mean? I was like, right, right. great. This is easy. And then I moved to L.A. and didn't work for three years. Like, I, was, I just didn't work. I couldn't <laughs> get a gig. And so I started making my own movies, making my own content, telling my own stories. And then I went to UCLA. And when I was at UCLA, that's when I read Brown Girl in the Rain. So I shopped it around. But you're like, think 15 years ago, no one was saying black sci-fi. And definitely no one was saying a Caribbean young woman protagonist. Like they were, "Mm -mm, there's no, you know, there's no market for this. So I just honed my directing skills. I got, you know, I did a short, a sci-fi short. It won at the American Black Film Festival, and then HBO bought it, and, you know, I just kept honing my skills. And then finally, in 2017, I was like, I'm ready. And so I went, and I pitched it again. I got some money, not a lot of money. I was like, it's do or die. I'm making it. So I decided to make a prequel. So the book is like, you know, brown girl in the wing, and she's like full-on got her powers, and this is sort of the origin story as she's leading up getting her power. Wow. This... You know what that means, right, Kevin? There's a sequel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there has to be. There has to be. There's a sequel. So... And we just got some money, my writing partner and I, to write the sequel. So, okay, before we jump into Brown Girl Begins, because I, I really want to get into it, um, you know, uh, another film fatale, Marriott Montpierre, she came on... Um, uh, earlier this year, I believe, and talked about her web series, Caribbean Girl, Girl NYC. Um, and obviously, mm. you know, the whole Caribbean thing, are you from the Caribbean? Because it's obviously, this, is, this means a lot to you. Yeah, well, my mother's Jamaican and my dad's Trinidadian. And from the time I was, you know, could travel on a plane with my grandmother, every summer I was sent, sent back to Jamaica and then when I was 16, my family moved back to Trinidad. So I stayed in Toronto, went to school, but I spent all my summers and holidays back home. So, yeah, that that sense of identity and language and culture, uh, especially living in Toronto and living in Canada where we don't have a huge black population like you do in America, mm. that sense of identity was really, really important to me. And I think, you know, there's a... In, in Brown Girl Begins, it's the Caribbean people in that book that lead um, lead the, the people out of this dystopia. And I, I, you know, obviously I'm a proud Caribbean, so I feel that we've got skills and, and a way of looking at the world 
that maybe if I, you know, only was black Canadian wouldn't have. Yeah. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking with a woman that understands uh, it's great to get back to your roots. She is the writer-director of Brown Girl Begins, Sharon Lewis. Sharon, yeah, I, I think that that is incredible. And I love the fact that um, you were like, not only do I want to do, you know, a film about, you know, Afrofuturism and, you know, black superhero, but I want to make sure that, you know, the lead is of Caribbean descent. So if you could really quickly break down what Afrofuturism is, and then if you could in your own words, what is Brown Girl Begins all about? Well, you know, I get asked this a lot about Afrofuturism, and there is a very heavy political, sociological definition of it that I'm not going to go to. For me, basically, Afrofuturism is we exist in the future. So if you've seen Blade Runner 2049, we do not exist in that future. We're not there. I love that film. I think it's beautifully shot. But there's one black person in that film, and he's selling parts. So for mm-hmm. me, Afrofuturism means we exist in the future, and then not only do we exist, but we are powerful. We're not just by the you know uh, wayside. We are actually leading the action that's happening in the future. So that for me is what Brown Girl Begins is about, because you've got the you know the wealthy have fled downtown, the downtown core, the poor left to fend for themselves, and there's like a sorcerer, drug lord. And Tijan is this young priestess, but she has to choose between love and then going through this very, very scary ritual that killed her mother in order to take on her priestess powers. And so we see her journey to coming to terms with taking on that responsibility and being a priestess. So it's heavy. It's not that we're going to lead the future and it's easy, it's heavy, but, but we're the ones to do it. Yeah, you know, that that is incredible. And hats off to you. Uh, if I had a little sound effect, I would have, like, the audience clapping right now. I might put that in there. <laughs> but the, we can do it ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I just love the fact that you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, in many of the films that we see about the future, we are just not there. And not, Kevin, not only, where are we? Yeah, yeah. Don't not, you want to know where are we? Like, seriously, when they look around and they're writing that, where, where do they think we've gone? Right, exactly. Well, um, a lot of times, well, sometimes we're down, you know, in the furnace doing something and building right. something. <laughs> so, so uh, and uh, honestly, right. I'm thinking about that. It's like a lot of Asian people that are down working in the, like, coal mine. Yeah. But anyways, you're, you're absolutely correct on that. Um, so one of the things I noticed about the film, the cinematography, obviously having the Caribbean background, colors are, are huge for people of the Caribbean, and uh, you have that infused in the film. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I really wanted to redefine what dystopia looks like through a Caribbean perspective, because a lot of dystopian films, uh, even the Book of Eli, you know, has that cold, green sort of look, even though I love Denzel in that film. Um, I really wanted to show what dystopia would look like through a Caribbean lens. So it was important to see little touches of the Caribbean. It's why I put the people on an island so that you see them surrounded by water, so that you see feathers and and touches of um, 
spirit all throughout this dystopia, that even their wardrobe and all of that reflects that sort of Caribbean perspective where we, we still infuse our lives with color and with, uh, you know, I like to say like a jaunty fashion. You know, I like, you know, mm. I sort of like that jaunty word. Mm-hmm. So I asked the cinematographer to really look at that, to really feel how we can infuse the film with just touches of those colors of hope, I call them, and colors of identity. And at the same time, you know, you'd still feel the bare and uh, dystopian feel of 2049, where there's no electricity, there's no power, there's there's very little running water. And, you know, there's so many parts of the Caribbean that are like that. So it didn't feel like a stretch. It felt like bringing, you know, the more sort of um, impoverished parts of the Caribbean into the Western sphere. Yeah, you know, I, I love that. And the the fact of the matter is, at the same time, instead of it being extremely bright, sometimes it feels like the colors are also a little bit muted. So I, I guess that kind of goes to what you're talking about in terms of the dystopia. And But it is almost like, you know, what would Jamaica look like in the future? I definitely think they kind of, you've nailed that whole look because it you still see the culture within the frame, but at the same time you see the, a little bit of lifelessness or, you know, a little bit that has been lost through the yeah. years. So, so that's really cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap things out here on this uh, radio interview, but we're going to have a little bit of an after show. So folks will definitely want to check out that episode. Um, but if you could, Sharon, how can people follow the film, uh, follow you guys on social media online? Well, if you go to browngirlbegins.com, we've got the trailer, we've got the DVD for sale, we, we post where the next showing is. We've got showings coming up in the UK. We've got showings coming up in the US. We just had a showing in Trinidad and Tobago at the Trinidad and Tobago Film Festival. So if you go to browngirlbegins.com, you can follow us and feel the love. I love it. That was a nice little line. Feel the love. Okay. Well, I definitely want to feel the love. It's been great talking with you. Writer director of Brown Girl Begins, Sharon Lewis. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Hi, Kevin. Let's take a quick break for the folks that keep the lights on. Stay tuned. What if you could have a film critic, film festival director, film publicist, and fellow filmmaker guide you with your film's PR and marketing journey from pre-production to post? I'm Kevin Sampson, and my online course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker, does just that. In this course, I'm going to teach you how to set up your film to engage an audience and build a community long before you call action. I'll show you how to approach critics to make them aware of your film like publicists do, And as a director of two film festivals, I won't just teach you hacks and secrets to reduce entry fees, but how you can use the festival circuit to create buzz around your film. I'm a huge supporter of diverse storytelling and film, and I believe the most unique voices come from indie filmmakers. That's who I've supported over the years with my show, Picture Lock, whether on TV or on radio. With as much experience as I've had as an independent filmmaker myself, critic, publicist, and festival director, I realized that most indie filmmakers just need access to the knowledge that big firms provide to achieve success. 
So in this course, I'm going to demystify some of the process and give you everything I know and a behind the scenes look at the sides of the business you don't always see. So if you're an indie filmmaker that's looking to change the game with your films, PR and marketing, make sure you check out PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Head on over to PRForTheIndieFilmmaker.com and get a free preview of the course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Get your film seen, build community, and become an army of one. Hey everybody, I appreciate everyone that listens to the Picture Lock podcast. And for you, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. If you're like me, then it's been a while since you've sat down and read a book, but it hasn't been long since you listened to a podcast. In fact, you're listening to one right now. Why? Because you're able to be entertained, informed, or educated on the go. That's kind of how I like my books as well. With Audible.com, I can listen to Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces or Robert McKee's story when I'm in the mood for learning about the craft or Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point when I'm trying to learn how to be a better influencer. The point is, a wealth of knowledge is at your fingertips. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com picturelock for a free 30-day trial. It's that easy. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash picturelock for a free 30-day trial to Audible. So I gave the question of the week a break for a little while because honestly, it's a bit of work for me to keep up with and we were having diminishing returns on it. So let's give it another go. In honor of Black Girl Begins, What's your favorite dystopian future film? Leave me a message 60 seconds or less on what that movie is and why, and I'm going to do my best to play it on the show. 202-350-1351. Leave me a message, a voicemail. You can always let me know on social media or email me at picturelockshow at gmail.com, and I'll read your answer next episode. I could definitely think of a few of those films that would probably fit the bill. Although, you know, as Sharon and I had spoke of, I think some of these actually had black people in them. Uh, The Matrix, for one, uh, Children of Men, Minority Report. What else is like some of those things? Mad Max Fury Road, that definitely would hit, hit the bill. And then I, Snowpiercer, I think, is one that was definitely uh, slept on. Um, so, uh, but again, kind of goes back to our point about, you know, black people being down in the furnace. And you definitely have Blade Runner, if I didn't say that all, already. But uh, yeah, man, there's so many different films to choose from. Can't wait to hear the ones that you guys love. Uh, and we'll definitely talk about those next week. Okay, but for now, let's go ahead and jump into this interview with Susie Unessi. Hey everyone, this is Ben Kendrick. You can follow me at Ben Kendrick on Twitter. You can check out ScreenRant.com. You're listening to Picture Lock. What up, everybody? Los Angeles actor Kevin O'Brien, South Carolina native, chopping it up with my man Big Kev. You're listening to Picture Lock. Keep listening. This man's the bomb. 
I'm Kevin Sampson. You're listening to Picture Lock and award-winning director Susie Unessi's second feature film, Unlovable, premiered at 2018 South by Southwest Film Festival, winning a special jury prize and rave reviews. The film stars Academy Award nominee John Hawks, Academy Award winner Melissa Leo, and comedian Charlene de Guzman. And it won the 2017 Sun Valley Film Festival Film Lab. I have a very accomplished Susie Unessi on the line. Susie, welcome to Picture Lock. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I'm excited to have you. Susie, the first question that I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? I fell in love with film watching The Last Unicorn <laughs> when I was a kid. And I remember the magic of the combination of story and music and texture in that movie. I don't know if you remember it, but it was such a beautiful animated film. So as a kid, for me, it really showed me the power of storytelling in a really profound way. That is awesome. I haven't gotten that yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely I don't I don't even remember if I've seen it. You know, at first I thought um, I thought you were talking about that Tom Cruise movie. Wasn't he going after a unicorn in like one of those way back in the day? Oh yeah, I can't remember what that was called, but I do remember the image of him in a horse. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, but but that was not it. This was a <laughs> film. It was like a Japanese animated film that was brought to the States and had Mia Farrow's voice and it was really stunning and the music was done by America so it was this really great score too yeah um yeah so that was that was was the moment for me (laughs) but um yeah the power of storytelling to young impressionable minds I love, I love the fact that um, you know I don't I don't know if I've necessarily had an animated film be one that someone has talked about yet, and I think that's fascinating because you know with animated films there's just a certain majestic quality to them, and especially back in those days, I, like I could totally see how you know as a kid just watching it you could be mesmerized. So that that's awesome. Yeah, well, I think in general, the kids' films that I grew up with in the 80s were just, they really spoke to audiences as opposed to now I feel like a lot of family films speak down to kids. Mm. Um, And so for me, I feel like The Dark Crystal, um, Water Babies, Labyrinth, there were just so many smart, adventure-driven movies that dealt with magical realism in such a fun and imaginative way. Yeah. All right. So take us from the little girl who is watching The Last Unicorn to the woman who is directing films, commercials now. Give us your backstory. How did you get into the industry? So um, in the 90s, I was actually in an all-girl riot band, uh, a riot girl band. And so... Yeah, so I played guitar, and I was really interested in music and played out a lot. And from there, I went to film school at San Francisco Institute, grad school at Columbia University. And then um, when I was at, I went to Tribeca for their all-access program with a feature script called Dear Lemon Lima, and that was about 10 years ago. 
and I met someone at ITBS at the time. They were supporting young filmmakers, and so that's how I got my first feature, Dear Lemon Lima, off the ground. Man, that's awesome. I, I would love to know, um, what are some of the things that you learned from your first feature that like has carried over into Unlovable? I think from the first feature, between the first feature and the second, it was just sort of picking your battles. Because I feel like on your first feature, you're so precious about every moment, every shot, not being able to pivot and buy a lovable because I had done a lot of commercial and branded stuff in between. I had learned how to like keep to the schedule, let the scene play out, throw away your shot list if um, if the scene, like follow the emotion of the scene. I think for the first feature, because I had such a plan for every single setup and moment and it needed to be exactly that, by the second feature then I felt like let the actors do their thing and then follow the emotion. So I think it's showing up prepared, but also being able to throw out whatever the plan you had was because mm. there's so much beauty that you'll find on the day. So I think now probably as a filmmaker, um, even I just in my third film, Daphne and Belma, just opening up a lot of room for play and for spontaneity to, um, to happen. So Especially Unlovable was such a small, it was a one fifty to $200,000 movie, so it was so low into the ground, and we had 16 days to pull it off, but we had this incredible cast, and I think with the camera just really allowing for play to happen and to follow the emotion of the scene. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking to ex-Riot Band member turned director Susie Unessi. Uh, her film Unlovable is out this November. So, Susie, if you could, like, in your own words, what is Unlovable all about? Unlovable is about a young woman who struggles with sex and love addiction and uh, is able to overcome her the sort of um, obstacles she faces making music with a reclusive man. So it's about a woman finding the beat to her, to herself um, throughout the film. And it stars Charlene de Guzman and it's based off of her real life story. Oh, geez. This is off of her real life story. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. No, nope. she, she, yeah, she struggled with sex and love addiction. So it's a very, personal film and um, the way it came about was really amazing with a lot. She's a comedian who's on Twitter and a lot of um, bigger actors and personalities follow her. Patton Oswalt follows her um, and would retweet her tweets. And that's how she linked up with Mark Duplass because he started to follow her and she sent him a DM and said, I'm a big fan of you. And he replied back and said, send me, any scripts you might have, and that's how the movie came to be. So this is why I always love talking with the filmmakers of a film. Um, I have seen Unlovable, and uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is 
just your character development? Because obviously, I mean, you're working with a, a heavyweight like John Hawks. Um, you know, I'm sure there are times where you're like, uh, you know, John, just do whatever you want to do. <laughs> but um, but but going to Charlene's character, like she feels so authentic and so real. And so finding out that this is based off of her real life. I mean, this makes it that much more interesting to me. Um, there are some uh, moments in this film that, like, are just heart-wrenching. And one of the things, one of the scenes that, I think I'm not going to spoil it too much, but she wakes up, and um, it's just, you can see the aftermath of her decision-making in regard to where she wakes up and, like, just kind of like the quote-unquote walk of shame, but... The way that you let it play out and kind of let the scene breathe, it is both devastating yet at the same time like eye-opening. Um, I'm not sure if you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you ta- so can you talk a little bit about like how you um, just develop the characters? Like you said, it's a very intimate story and personal story, and and. And as an audience member, like, I truly felt that way. Like, I, I'm like, okay, uh, she is, like, my friend, you know, like, from way in high school. It's just like you feel like you know the characters. Yeah, there's definitely, this movie is one of those movies that you know that person. So everyone knows that person, and that person needs to see this movie. <laughs> like, so that's my pitch to people is, like, you all have that one friend um, who needs to see this movie and not something struggling to goose on the star the other day where we were at the Q&A and she said that and it just resonated with me in such a deep way because I do think that everyone has a friend who could really benefit from this. Um, but even both the characters, they're so wildly different mm-hmm. um, with Charlene. She's, um, she has such an innocence to her, but she's, working through such darkness at the start of this film. And for John's character, Jim, he's this reclusive man who loves music. And I feel like growing up in a riot girl band, I knew that guy so well, because there's so many people living in small towns, trying, you know, loving making music, but not really knowing how to get themselves out there because they're trapped inside their garages. Um, and for me, with handling the film, Sarah Dina Smith, who's one of the writers, but also a really great director, had brought me into this film. And when she set me up with Charlene, she said, if I was going to set two people up on a friend date, it would be you guys. And so Charlene is very similar to me in the way she sees the world. With like, She loves kawaii stuff, which is super cute. Stuff. Um, she sees a lot of brightness in the world. And so in telling the story, for me, it was important to play against sort of the way we've seen sex and love addiction portrayed in films and bring lightness to it and to make sure that the world is seen through the protagonist's eyes and the way she sees the world. And just because you're dealing with darkness within your life, I think you can still be light and see the world in in colorful colors and bright and vibrant colors. So that's the way the story has been handled. And even the moment that you're talking about, that's the walk of shame can, could have conventionally been directed. So it's like late at night, dark out when she wakes up. And instead it's 
a room flooded with lights. Mm-hmm. And she wakes up and it sort of starts in this romantic, sweet way and then unfolds as we see the darkness and the reality of the situation. But it's done in a way that has a lot of lightness and air to it. Um, and that's for me, I think, in talking about sex and love addiction, it was just important to treat it in a way that was respectful and gave people hope. Yeah, you know, and I think you did that in an excellent way. And hats off to you um, in choosing a slow reveal like that because I think um, you allow the audience, like you you expect us to be smart and to be able to catch on and to like, you know, we make our own kind of conclusions, but you know, it's not force fed. Um, and so I really love that. One more question before we kind of wrap out here. Could you talk a little bit about um, what I feel like the, the, the film can be a story of like redemption and the uphill battle that, it, you know, when we're trying to make a change, but how you just got to like kind of do it because sometimes it seems like it's insurmountable but I think through the course of the film, you just realize, hey, it's just putting one foot in front of the other and just continuing to move. Yeah, definitely. Well, I don't want to ruin the opening scene, but I think where she starts is very, very much rock bottom, but it's handled in a way where even with rock bottom, there's always tomorrow. So... Um, I think one foot in front of another and and that um, that everyone faces similar obstacles and struggles and has has been at that place where it feels like you're alone and and I think the takeaway is you're not alone and there are so many other people out there fighting their demons and it really is like finding your purpose and using your voice to be the change that you want to see. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the director of Unlovable, Susie Une- Unessi. Sorry about that, Susie. <laughs> um, yeah, totally fine. Uh, so, Susie, if we could, just wrapping out here, um, you know, how can people find out more about the film, catch the film as it's about to come out, and then follow you on social media? Well, the film is coming out November 2nd. It's going to be in 10 cities. It's in L.A., Detroit, Atlanta, Kansas City, uh, Boston, Chicago, and then five other cities. We'll put it up on uh, on our Facebook page, which is Unlovable Movie. And, uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Susie Nessie, S-U-Z-I-Y-O-O-N-E-S-S-I, and I'll be posting a bunch about it as we lead up to the premiere, and there should also be a lot of fun press and conversations coming out, revealing more about the film um, and how it was made and the people behind the movie and, and the music. Most definitely a film that you want to get behind, folks. Um, I'm giving it my stamp of approval. Unlovable, as she said, comes out November 2nd. Director Susie Unessi, thank you so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun chatting with you. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Leah Meyerhoff, Sharon Lewis, and Susie Unessi for coming on the show. For you radio listeners, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear Sharon and Susie's after-show conversation with me. 
It's only available on the podcast, but has a host of information which will really help you as a practitioner if you're listening and you're a filmmaker uh, in regard to your PR and filmmaking for your film. Trust me, these were some great after show interviews. Again, it's only available on the podcast and I'll be dropping it on Monday and Wednesday this coming week. You can do that in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast so you can catch the after show and any unlocked versions of the show. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say Alexa Play Picture Lock Podcast and I'll come right up. Please leave a five-star review of the show as well. It really does help to get the show out to a larger audience and I really do appreciate those. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash picture lock show and subscribe. I'm finally getting back on it with my YouTube reviews. And uh, after seeing uh, so much at Middleburg, I definitely plan to post a bunch more YouTube reviews. Um, right now, I do have the spoiler-free review for Widows up under the new release section of the website. So you definitely want to check that out. Uh, if you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website as well. Picture Lock question of the week this week is, What's your favorite dystopian future film? Leave me a voicemail at 202-350-1351 or send me an email at picturelockshow at gmail.com or message me on any of PictureLock's social media pages and let me know what your answer is and I'll play it or read it on next week's show. All music is done by Mike S. The Producer 13. Make sure you follow him on all things social media at Mike S. The Producer, numero one, numero three. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.